I think you've been asked this question before, but is there any prospect for a book penned by James Corbett? (laughs) You're listening to The Corbett Report. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Patrick McFarlane. This one is episode 111. And as always, the show notes may be found at libertyweekly.net forward slash 111. We have two awesome, excellent guests here today. The co-host first, Keith Knight, and the second is James Corbett. James is the man behind the Corbett Report, which may be found at corbettreport.com. The Corbett Report is a platform for open source journalism, uncovering everything from the true motivations behind World War One to the eugenics agenda and 9-11 truth. James, great to have you on. Thank you so much, uh, Patrick and Keith. It's great to be here. And it's especially good to be talking about this subject we're going to be talking about today. And let me take the reins for a minute <laughs> and introduce it to the people, because you've asked me here today uh, to basically do an extension of a questions for Corbett that I did a while ago called What's on Your B- Bookshelf, where I went through some of the books on my bookshelf and recommended books to people. And I'm so glad that you are doing this, because I swear to God, every single week, I get at least one person emailing me, what's on your bookshelf? Can you talk about some books? I need a book. Can you recommend a book? Every week, without fail, this week, last week, the week before, the week before. So, uh, yes, I have talked about this before, and I will talk about it again in the future, and I'm having authors on my program all the time with books that to recommend, and in fact, I have created a new tag on my website, corporatereport.com slash tag slash books. I think that's the link. Um, and you can go through and you can see all of the authors that I've interviewed about their books. And you can see all of my questions for Corbett about what's on your bookshelf. I did a questions for Corbett World War One Q&A where I went through all my World War One reading. I did a video called new, a New World Order reading list a few years ago. So I've talked about it many times, but <laughs> people are still hungry for books and good on them because books are exceptionally important in the digital age as more and more people get lost in the rabbit hole of social media and spend uh, you know hours scrolling through their phone look, clicking on you know the next link to the next article before they even ingest it having actual reading reading actual books is the difference between eating McDonald's and eating at a four star diner you know no absolutely definitely. Yeah. I, I i am so excited for our topic today and Jane, uh, Pat, uh, did you have anything else before uh, James starts us off uh, with a book? Well, I was just going to say uh, one thing. I, you know, our show, me and Keith, is really kind of turning into a show and tell for books when we get together. But I think you were just saying, I don't know if it was on a recent appearance, James. You were saying that um, there's just no substitute for reading books. You know, what you do is you make a lot of really great documentaries, but. You, what you really want to do is just put the entire book in it, but you can't really grab people that way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, because uh, there is a use to having the information in a more accessible way, and that is good. And, and so what I'm doing, I think, is important. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to downplay what I'm doing, what you guys are doing, what everyone out there on, online is doing. But, I mean, it really hits home when you're reading... Uh, you know, like Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's books on World War One, and you're reading the amount of detail and information and sources and just so much information in there. And then you're sitting there thinking, how the hell do I condense this down into an hour and a half and not miss the the real core and soul of what this 
book is about and what it's saying. It's it's really hard. And so, yes, if all I'm doing is directing people towards the books and the other sources, that's I think that's my job accomplished. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have nothing but respect to the people who spend years of their life compiling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages based on hundreds, thousands of footnotes on all these different sources, putting it out there. And then, you know, I don't know, in this day and age, maybe you get a few hundred people to read it, maybe. Whereas I come along and make a documentary and get a million people to watch it. So (laughs) it's just the nature of what it is. But yes, do not stop reading books to people out there. And look, I'm not on a high horse here. I've done it myself. I noticed over the last few years, I noticed I was reading books less and less and reading articles and stuff online more and more. And I was one of those people scrolling through my smartphone, just ingesting information like little, uh, I don't know, like rice cakes or something. It's just, it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's air that you're just ingesting. And then, but I've gotten back into the habit of really reading. And at this point, I always have at least one ebook, one physical book and one audiobook on the go at all times, this time being no exception. So, uh, let's, let's get into it. Awesome. And I, I got a big question for you towards the end. So don't let me forget about it, but go ahead. Oh, okay. My first book. Um, yep. Okay, this yeah, one is uh, fine-tuned for your audience. I don't know if you guys have mentioned it before, probably have, but I'll mention it uh, as well. The Politics of Obedience by Etienne de la Boetie. And um, for people who don't know, this is a 500 or so year old treatise at this point, um, written in the 1500s uh, by this Frenchman. Um, I don't know how much to introduce it, except to say that I have the ridiculously large print edition, which you get from, uh, I don't know why they do this. I'm not blind, but the Mises Institute (laughs) publishes these books that are (laughs) gigantic print. (laughs) Anyway, it feels like a big book, but it's not. (laughs) You can read it in a couple hours. Um, but, uh, to get, give people the gist of it, I would say this is... So important because it is the solution to so many of the problems that we talk about, the erosion of freedom and all of this. And the solution, it's almost too simple for people to grasp. People want some sort of complicated, no, you've got to create this new political structure that's going to be organized this way, and you've got to have this and that, and check and balance, and you've got to vote, and you've got to do this, and then, and then all the other things in order to somehow grasp onto liberty again. No, no, no. It comes down to brass tacks in such a simple way that most people can't grasp it. And and one of the things he talks about is the way that um, that people's uh, people are, uh, I mean, it's it's uh, Larkin Rose's The Tiny Dot, basically, where this tiny dot, this little tiny fraction of people control this gigantic multitude of people who are scared. Oh, look at that tiny dot. Oh, my God. That's essentially what, um, what Boaty is pointing to here. And he says, uh, for example, if two, if three, if four do not defend themselves from the one, we might call that circumstance surprising, but nevertheless conceivable. In such a case, one might be justified in suspecting a lack of courage. But if a hundred, if a thousand, capture the, in, endure the caprice of a single man, should we not rather say that they lack not the courage, but the desire to rise against him? And that such an attitude indicates indifference rather than cowardice? And uh, I think that gestures towards one of the fundamental points of this, which is we are enslaved in our mind. We are enslaved because we believe, oh no, this gigantic godlike presence of the president or the emperor or whatever it is controls all of us and there's nothing we can do about it. 
what are you talking about? There are hundreds of millions of us. There are 500 Congress critters or whatever it is. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's nonsense. It's all in our mind. And then, of course, that comes down to, then what is the solution? The solution is to be free. To be free. And that's, again, it's something that it's hard to even articulate because it's so simple and so obvious, but he does an excellent job of it. And I swear, you can read this in a few hours. So if you have not read this yet, please do. I think it's an exceptionally important book for all the things that you guys talk about and everything that the Corbett reports about, too. Those large print editions, they might say a lot about, um, you know, who's buying things at the Mises Institute. I know they have a lot of young blood, but maybe... Um, I also have a Hans Hermann Hoppe large print. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's not convenient for toting around, is it? All right, should Uh, I keep going or are you guys going to go? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I got tons of books here. All right, next one. Uh, I talked to him once on the program, so you can go in the archives for the interview. It's Rick Falkvinge, and he wrote a book called Swarmwise. For people who who are not familiar with Rick Falkvinge, um, he was the founder of the, the Swedish Pirate Party, and Swarmwise is essentially about how he did it. How did you found a new political party that just suddenly took whatever it was, 10% of the vote or something, out of completely out of nowhere, with zero funding, zero, zero organization? Like, how do you do that? That's how, this is how you do it. It is a decentralized movement. And again, this speaks to so much of what you guys are are talking about and what I'm talking about. Decentralization, spontaneous order. This is how it's done. Um, And he talks about, I mean, it's just a fascinating story. If you don't know the story of the Swedish Pirate Party and how it came about, well, here it is. And uh, he's talking about swarm organization. He says a swarm organization is a decentralized, collaborative effort of volunteers that looks like a hierarchical, traditional organization from the outside... It's built by a small core of people that construct a scaffolding of go-to people, enabling a large number of volunteers to cooperate on a common goal in quantities of people not possible before the net was available. Working with a swarm requires you do a lot of things completely opposite from what you learn at an archetypal business school. You need to release the control of your brand and its messages. You need to delegate authority to the point where anybody can make almost any decision for the entire organization. You need to accept and embrace that people in the organization will do exactly as they please, and the only way to lead is to inspire them to want to go where you want the organization as a whole to go to. Uh, It is only as you release the control, the kind of control that organizations and managers have held close to their heart for centuries, that you can reap the benefits of the swarm. Um, Again, extremely interesting. And this might sound all like pie-in-the-sky stuff, you know, oh, yeah, that would never work in real life. It did. It did work in real life. Here's the actual story of how it worked and how this leaderless, decentralized non-organization organization came about and succeeded. It's an extremely important story. So I'll, I'll have to have Rick back on the program to talk about that again in the future. Moving on? Moving on. Please. Unless you guys want to comment on any of these books, please do. Okay. All right. Uh, next one is called Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood. Uh, it's by Aaron Franz, who I've had on the program a few times in the past. Not recently, but he, he's been on the program. I don't think we ever specifically talked about this book um, on the program, but we talked about the things that it's about. 
transhumanism and the scientific dictatorship generally. And so we've talked about that in various permutations. And obviously, I think that'll be something that's familiar to my listeners, maybe maybe not so much your listeners, but transhumanism, the idea that we're moving into the singularity, we're going to merge with the machines, it's going to be a utopia, and oh, by the way, you know, it'll be a completely controlled and surveilled society in which you'll have exactly zero freedom. Um, so that, I mean, is just, I think, interesting to either your audience or my audience in general, but this also deals with the esoteric aspects of it, which um, are fascinating. It's not something I generally go into in my work, but um, Aaron delves into. And one thing that I found interesting, actually, I should note, I actually wrote the foreword to this book. Um, so if people buy it, they can read my foreword to the book as well. Um, but in chapter eight, I was just looking at this today, just, uh, you know, seeing, oh, what, what's in here again? Uh, and, I, and what stuck out to me is chapter eight is on post-genderism. And it starts by saying, one of the strangest trends within transhumanism is that of post-genderism, which is the idea of transcending gender itself. Post-genderism is yet another ism which buddies up with transhumanism. Post-genderists seek to go beyond the confines of their own male or female-specific bodies. Becoming post-gender, one could merge both male and female traits to achieve gender singularity within the self. Another way to go could be to ignore both male and female to end up as some unknown form of neuter. By upgrading bodies and minds with varied transhuman technologies or surgeries, post-gender post-humans could become something beyond male or female. This sounds bizarre and even ridiculous to most people who stumble upon the subject, but it should be understood that transhumanists are completely serious about it. They make frequent reference to it, both overtly and covertly. Post-genderism is an important part of their project. And I found that interesting because I remember when I was reading this book for the first time over a decade ago now, I was like, yeah, and like, I get it. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But now tr fast forward a decade. This is this is like mainstream headline news now. Like this is daily. Th this is the stuff that we're talking about at, at this particular moment now with uh, uh, transgenderism and all of this. So it's it's interesting to see how prescient some of this stuff is and how you don't really get it, really get it until you know, a few years later, oh, oh, I get what he's talking about. Anyway, so it deals with a lot of different aspects of kind of the transhumanistic um, agenda that I find interesting, and obviously pertains to the question of human freedom, um, because as I make the point in my foreword to that book, the fundamental question is, what is human? And that, 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 what is human? It is changing, and uh, not necessarily for the better, and how are you going to have human freedom if you don't have humanity? Uh, let's change gears completely. <laughs> uh, the 2001 Anthrax Deception by Graeme McQueen. I, he is a, a professor, or he was the founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University. I've had him on the program a few times. We talked specifically about this book, so you can look in my interview archive for that conversation. And uh, this is a book about the anthrax attacks of 2001, because mention a terrorist attack in 2001, Hopefully, everyone knows of 9-11. Actually, there's an increasing percentage of the population that doesn't know what year 9-11 took place in, which is bizarre. But hopefully, people will remember 9-11, 2001. But not, uh, not as many people remember the anthrax attacks. And why is that? It's because, oh, Al-Qaeda, you know, here's the next stage. It's the next part of the 9-11 attacks. And then, oh, it kind of sourced from within the U.S. And it seems domestic. Let's never talk about it again. So it obviously got 
swept under the rug and blamed on someone who conveniently committed suicide shortly after being blamed, or no, shortly before being blamed by the FBI, actually. So there you go. Um, so this dissects that story in a very helpful way. For people who are completely unfamiliar with it, it's a good good way to dip your toe into it. And as I say in my conversation with Graham from several years ago now, three or four years we talked to, about this, um, I said to him, this is an academic page-turner. I mean, it's it's academic, it's scholarly, it's got, I mean, it's, it's sourced and everything, and it's it's not sensational, but it, it really is easy to read. It's extremely easy to read and get through, and it is, I, I find it a great comprehensive overview. Uh, it doesn't get into all the nitty-gritty detail, as as he even admits, but it's it's a great way of getting into the um, the subject if you're new to it. And uh, the chapter that stuck out, stuck out for me at the time I was reading it, chapter six, Advanced Knowledge of the Attacks, where he goes through a lot of the, the stuff that was in the press in the weeks after 9-11, in Newsweek and the New York Times and the Washington Post and on TV, and he goes through a lot of different examples, how they were all saying the next step is a biological attack, the next step is a biological attack. They were talking about anthrax. Cipro sales, the Cipro anti-anthrax drug sales were increasing, specifically in that time, which is interesting. And then, of course, obviously, one of the advanced, advanced knowledge of the attacks the entire White House staff went on Cipro um, shortly after 9-11, which he documents in here. So, um, uh, lots of different little tidbits like that. Should I keep going? Because I'm not even yep. halfway through. <laughs> yep. This is awesome. <laughs> Speaking of 9-11, it boggles my mind. It really fascinates me how few... I'm not sure I've talked to anyone who has read this. I mean, I'm sure some of the guests that I've talked to have read this, but every time I ask people, have you actually read the 9-11 Commission? I always get a no. <laughs> I won't embarrass you two right now. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. But I find it interesting, people who do study 9-11 and talk about 9-11 who haven't even read the Commission and don't know what it says is bizarre. Um, so I will recommend it. I do think people should actually read the 9-11 Commission report so that they know what the official story actually is. Because, you know, you have to know the official story to know what is wrong about it, I think. I think it's an exceptionally important part. So I'm somewhat skeptical of researchers, researchers who talk about 9-11 who haven't even read the official report. I read this hot off the press. Um, I was here in Japan at that time when it was first released. And I remember reading in the newspaper here, in the English language newspaper, they had a, a, a reprint of the, I don't know, the LA Times or something. And uh, it, it was an editorial in the LA Times talking about the commission report and saying, you know, this is extremely readable. It's actually, you know, it's, it's really well written and people should read it. And I was like, well, I'm interested. Okay, I'll give it a, I'll give it a read. So I read it at the time and just accepted it, because I was not questioning 9-11 at that time. I just read it as history. You know, oh, this is how it happened. Okay, interesting. Um, how how things have changed. But let, let me just give you a sense of that. This is the way this report opens. Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, dawned temperate and nearly cloudless in the eastern United States. Millions of men and women readied themselves for work. Some made their way to the Twin Towers, the signature structures of the World Trade Center complex in New York City. Others went to Arlington, Virginia, to the Pentagon. Across the Potomac River, the United States Congress was back in session. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, people began to line up for a White House tour. In Sarasota, Florida, President George W. Bush went for an early morning run. 
For those heading to an airport, weather conditions could not have been better for a safe and pleasant journey. Among the travelers were Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Al-Omari, who arrived at the airport in Portland, Maine. Uh, it's a, as, as that uh, thing I was reading in the LA Times or whatever it was pointed out at the time, this is not written like a government report. Right? This is not some, like, boring whatever, just a government publication. This is written almost as if it's like a novel or something, like a, you can actually read it like a story, which is interesting, and especially interesting because, of course, we know the director of the commission was Philip Zelikow, who talked about the need for myth-making when it comes to events like 9-11, right? You know, the big, that he suddenly gets to be the myth-maker, and as we know, he had the entire report, head headings and subheadings and sub-subheadings written out before the report was written, before they even started the investigation. Craziness. Anyway, it is worth actually reading that. Let's keep going. Uh, I've recommended this one a few times before. I'll recommend it again. The Seeds of Destruction by William Engdahl about the hidden agenda of genetic manipulation. I suppose this is dated by now because it came out uh, 12 years ago. Um, yeah, but, uh, but still worth reading. Uh, it's about, obviously, genetic engineering, uh, genetic engineering of the food supply specifically, but it talks about the, the sort of broader implications of this and puts it in the context of population control. Uh, for people who are skeptical, quizzical, who are just inclined to believe, well, the scientists say it's safe. Well, you have to know the details of what scientists are saying it's safe, and how did they come to that idea, and what, what does it mean? What, what government bodies are in charge of regulating this, and how do they regulate it, and who, who are those people, and how are the, what are they, their relations to the actual industry itself that they're regulating? All of the detail. I mean, there is so much detail in here about the connections and the business and, uh, and names, dates, people's places. It's really fascinating for, for me to read through this, and I've relied on it for a lot of my research before. Um, I've specifically mentioned it in a podcast episode that I'm not going to remember the name of off the top of my head, but about genetic engineering. And uh, just to give you a sense of the overall sort of purpose of this book, he writes in the afterword of the book, uh, population reduction and genetically engineered crops were part of the same broad strategy. Drastic targeted reduction of the world's population, genocide, the systematic elimination of entire population groups was the result of a willful policy promulgated under the name of solving the world hunger problem. Recalling the earlier words of Henry Kissinger is telling. Control the oil, you control the land. Control the food, you control the people. By 2006, Washington's Bush administration seemed well on the way to securing global control of both oil and food. What was not yet clear was whether hundreds of millions of normal health-loving citizens would decide the issues at stake were too important to leave to such people. Um, no, those, those words were penned in July of 2007 by William Engdahl, and here we are 12 years later, and not much, unfortunately, has really changed uh, in the debate, except I think after they get done with uh, outlawing anti-vaccination rhetoric, they're going to outlaw anti-GMO rhetoric, so I'm sure we have that to look forward to. Uh, let's change gears dramatically once again. I've mentioned this a couple times, but I really have to <coughs> talk about this book. The Beatles. Tune in. <laughs> this is the first volume of a uh, projected three-volume work by Mark Lewison, who is, going, who is considered the world's foremost expert on the Beatles. 
the Beatles scholar, if there is such a thing. And um, this is going to be the story of the Beatles. So this is the story up until 1963. So this is basically it goes. Here's here's the interesting part, and this is why I'm recommending this book. I I am so insane that I didn't get the regular trade paperback version. I got the bound two-volume edition of the first volume. It's, I don't know, 14, 1,500 pages or something. And I read it in like a month. I just, I went, I burned through it because it was so fascinating. Um, not only because I'm a Beatles fan. If you're not a Beatles fan, I get it. Who cares, right? But no, I mean, there's two things I would say to commend this book. One is that I don't care if you're a Beatles fan or not. Just the story of the uh, the rising up of the most crazy media phenomenon in history to that point and arguably ever one of the craziest phenomenon ever just the, the how did that story come about is a fascinating story i don't care if you like the music or not but secondarily it's actually an interesting work of history uh, you really especially in this first volume here where he's talking he traces it all the way back to the the beatles grandparents and then their parents, and then the Beatles themselves, and them growing up in Liverpool, in post-war Liverpool in the, you know, 40s and 50s, you really get a sense of what it was like to live in that time. Like, you can almost breathe the air, you, you see the streets. It's extremely well done historical research in here, and you get a good sense of it. And it really gave me a, a sort of different perspective on that post-war period in Britain from a historical perspective, let alone the Beatles story. So, I'll recommend it. I think it's an interesting book. But maybe you have to be a crazy Beatles fan to truly appreciate it. Okay, so that's the physical books for now. I'm going to move on to the e-books, but why don't you guys take a take a bit? Yeah, let's go with Patrick first, and then I will go uh, after that. Patrick has uh, two books for us. Um, yeah, I do, and, and maybe... James, you'd be familiar with this one. Um, this one is On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And I did do a piece on this, uh, I think, a couple of years ago now. It's called uh, Blood Makes the Green Grass Grow. Uh, so I'll link that in the show notes page along with everything that we've talked about thus far. Um, but you will never think of war and combat the same way again after reading this book. And it stinks that Dave Grossman is a horrible, terrible person who goes around um, having conferences about how to train police and military to kill without uh, any kind of hesitation. It's called the Warrior Cop series. Um, but, however, this book really, I paradoxically, I suppose, kind of highlights this innate human um, resistance towards taking fellow human life. And it documents it throughout history. Basically, every single war film that you've ever seen is horribly wrong because it seems that in what the historical evidence seems to show is that soldiers in combat will do everything that they can to prevent the taking of human life. Um, now, granted, that does change. And it Excuse me. It really starts with SLA Marshall's study during World War II when he pulled um, Allied soldiers and found that in any given engagement with the enemy, only one out of every five men would take, quote, any part of it with his rifle. And so that showed, you know, 20 percent of 80 percent of soldiers would not fire at all in combat. And so since then, the U.S. Army has, of course, taken it and. 
uh, created reflexive fire training so that we uh, get soldiers to fire their weapons 98 to 99% of the time in any given engagement. And so it's in one on one hand, it's a beautiful story about the reality of human nature. But on the other hand, well, look what we've gone and done with it. And I would speculate that perhaps this. Now, I, I don't really know um, how prevalent moral injury is and how much that's been growing as of late or if it's been growing or what the trend is. But I would suspect that with the higher rate of fire, you'd be getting more instances of moral injury and it would be getting worse. So. Um, I definitely recommend this book. Uh, buy it used as to not give Dave Grossman any more funds to have his terrible seminars. Um, but that is a great book. Next is... Uh, wait, wait, just let me, let me put in a plug oh, yeah. for your um, Blood Makes the Green Grass Grow, uh, the little documentary you put together. I did put it in my newsletter at the time as a recommended video, but I really hope people will, will uh, take a look at that because it was really well done. Yeah, I appreciate that, yeah. Uh, makes me feel real good. Um, but um, yeah, so that was that was an interesting lesson to learn. That was my first stab at uh, Corbett style documentary. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the next one is Illiberal Reformers by Thomas C. Leonard. Um, the subtitle is Race, Eugenics, and American Economics in the Progressive Era. And this really gives the full story, um, no holds barred, of what the Progressive Era was, who the progressives were what their thought process were and really does make a connection between the same policies that we see uh, rampant in the United States and um, what their origin was. These are the same policies that these racists and eugenicists and dysgenics, uh, what they purported in the past being instituted now under the banner of progressivism and equality. Um, so it really traces that it's very well done. Although I don't know if Thomas C. Leonard would make the connection to modern day politics, um, between this, I, I think a straight ideological line to the past. So James, I know you probably have some to add on. Oh, that. I have a whole lot to add, but that'll be coming in <laughs> on my site in the future. But thank you for digging that up and let me once again, plug your podcast. Cause it was episode 14 of Liberty weekly that I first heard about that and I blew me away. So I, uh, I recommended that at the time I'll recommend it again. It was a great podcast. Lots of good info in there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks Keith. All right, so the first one I want to do is called How to Win Every Argument, The Use and Abuse of Logic by the head of the Adam Smith Institute. He goes through a ton of logical fallacies. Without being able to think clearly, you're more subject to be manipulated, less likely to engage in freedom, and more likely to be doing the work of conspirators than uh, achieving virtue in your life. Second book is The Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose. In short... Um, violence is immoral for all people, including a group, even if the group is called the government group, the Congress group, the police group, the military group. It's an attempt to apply morality consistently and give a foundation for it. Next, uh, short answers to tough questions by Mary J. Ruart. In other words, we often talk a lot about the philosophy of freedom, but how does it work in the real world? If there was no slavery, but everyone starved. Would we still advocate freedom? Well, she says, we don't have to make that choice, fortunately enough. Next book, Hans Hermann Hoppe, Theory of Capitalism and Socialism. Uh, he defines the different types of societies that can occur. One based in the private property ethic and 
voluntary exchange, original appropriation and contract, socialism being the institutionalized aggression against private property, and communism as defined by Marx being the abolition of private property. The Whenever the charlatan appears, uh, he always attempts to redefine terms, whether it's freedom, truth, government, capitalism, free market, socialism, coercion, eugenics, they often will attempt to change the way the masses think about things in order to manipulate them further. As far as conspiracies go, the Franklin cover-up, this was by a Nebraska state senator. That goes to show you how evil humanity really can be, and that someone with a lot of clout that we would think of can come out about something and it get no coverage. That was published in the 80s. Bohemian Grove, Facts and Fiction by Mark Dice. Excellent book. 63 Documents by Jesse Ventura, the uh, governor who exposes 63 uh, conspiracies using primary sources. Anthony Sutton gets a bunch of documents by Charlotte Thompson Isabet and exposes a conspiracy decades before two Skull and Bones members run against each other. We have primary sources and we're called conspiracy theorists. We have theories. We don't actually go into the topics. Speaking of primary sources, Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. This is the guy who started the real investigation into the Fed motivated by Ezra Pound. Want to know something about the education system? The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America by Charlotte Thompson Isabet. She's the one who gave Sutton those files. The Lucentania by Colin Simpson. This book is excellent. Um, if nothing else, there is one chapter where he cites a, doc, a uh, conversation between Sir Edward Gray and uh, Colonel House. Is uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, can, I, can I put an asterisk on that one? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's the one that everyone cites about the Lusitania, and it has some great stuff in there, including the Edward Grey conversation, which I linked in my World War I conspiracy to the actual part of the memoir. But um, there's a huge asterisk that goes next to Colin Simpson because, and I'll put the link in the show notes for people who are interested, uh, there's someone who investigated and found, you know, where he's quoting that thing on, from page whatever of that book. It's not in that book. There's nothing like that in that book. It doesn't say that, and that's not what happened. And he was given the chance, uh, according to this account, he was given the chance to respond to it and completely ignored it, never explained why he cites things that are not in the actual books that he's citing. So there's a huge asterisk that goes next to Colin Simpson. You know, that's disappointing to hear because uh, I looked at the source, and it's source number seven on page 275, The Intimate Papers of Colonel House 435. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, che and I checked that primary Yeah, that one source. is there, and as I say, that was in World War One Conspiracy. I put that in there, but I got that from the memoirs themselves. Yeah, but there was, uh, there was certain things, the key points of Churchill ordered it on the map here for the Lusitania to go in and blah, 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 and no, there was no such thing in the book that he's citing. Oh, well, that, 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 of course, is disappointing. The reason I mention that book is because there's two things that, uh, that I, I believe are true. They do pass the uh, source test. Uh, the uh, German government putting the ad in American newspapers, as well as that conversation between Gray and House. I believe the fact that I went through 12 years of school and a couple years of college before being kicked out of three without hearing those, was just devastating. The, the First World War, based on a lie as far as American involvement goes. Finally, Day of Deceit by Robert Stinnett. 
if you go to page, let me look at it here. I believe James has interviewed Robert, and unfortunately I wasn't able to. If you go to page 275, you can look at the primary document that is cited from the Freedom of Information Act that pretty much puts the nail in the coffin of the Pearl Harbor myth. Surprise attacked. We were just isolationists. Turns out isolation does isolationism doesn't work. We need to have interventionism. That is all I have for you. James, you want to uh, give us uh, your last books? Yeah, my last several. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Corporate Report Radio, episode 50, was my conversation with Robert Stinnett, for people who are interested in that. All right. Um, as I say, I've got an interview with a lot of the different authors and things that we're talking today, so people can check the archives for that. All right. Speaking of people I've interviewed... Um, I have interviewed Patrick Wood a few times, and he was the author of Technocracy Rising back in 2015. I think that's when that came out. Um, but I just finished reading his latest book, Technocracy Hard Road to World Order. I haven't talked to him about it yet, but I'll have to get him on the program because there were some interesting details in there. So this is kind of a follow-up. For people who don't know, Technocracy was was an actual movement that was founded in the 1930s and uh, was seeking to essentially socially engineer the entire society by technocrats, engineers, and scientists, and specialists who know what's what and what we need to do. They're the ones who should be running society, right? Well, as you can imagine, there are some problems with that. Um, and I've, I, I've talked about it in, for example, my Big Oil documentary, so people who aren't completely unfamiliar can look at that or read Technocracy Rising. Technocracy Hard Road to World Order is the kind of follow-up to this, talking in more detail about it. And he talks about some things that gave me some pause for thought, because obviously a lot of us here in the freedom and liberty movement are interested in cryptocurrency and the way that it uh, can potentially foster a different system than the one that Eustace Mullins and others were talking about with regards to the Federal Reserve and that phony baloney monetary system the, that we're in, currently entrapped in, or enslaved in, if you want, century of enslavement history of the Federal Reserve. Um, but, so cryptocurrency could be this way out of it, right? But it can also, well, it's going to be subverted uh, for uses that uh, the freedom movement does not want it to be used for. And this is a point Patrick Wood is making here in this book, uh, where he writes, in the midst of crypto madness, central banks of the world have been quietly plotting their own strategies to co-opt the distributed blockchain model of cryptocurrencies in favor of a centralized blockchain to be maintained by them. In other words, the details of every cryptocurrency transaction would be flashed back to a centralized database where it would be tracked and analyzed ad infinitum. And he goes on in a lot of detail about this. Um, and I, this is what I was gesturing towards in my podcast on the Bitcoin PSYOP for people who saw that one, um, where I was talking about, you know, there's there's kind of cryptocurrency and what it's meant to be. But there's this other thing that it's they're they're going to try to push it in that direction where it's centralized and the government issues it and it, they record everything. And it's the kind of technocrat wet dream. Um, but uh, he he also talks in this book about Earth Dollars, which I hadn't heard of before, which is this idea for tokenizing basically the entire natural world. Every, every object and every space and everything, every resource in the world is going to be tokenized and put on the blockchain and, and, and uh, made into a, a kind of currency, which will then be transacted. It's a, a crazy idea that I, I see so clearly how they're going to try to engineer this into the sustainable, uh, uh, sustainable Development Agenda 2030 kind of uh, plans. So people who are interested, definitely check out that book. I, as I say, I'll have to have Patrick on to talk about that more in the future. A book I read recently um, that I'm also going to have to interview the author, Davy Barker, about uh, authoritarian sociopathy. 
toward a renegade psychological experiment, which is um, something that stemmed from a talk that uh, Davy gave at Porkfest 10 or 11 or something like that several years ago, where I guess there was a competition. I'm not sure exactly what the competition was about, <laughs> but anyway, he won the competition, and, it, and he won with this thought experiment that he designed um, basically going beyond the Milgram experiment. I hope people in your audience are familiar with the Milgram experiment. Anyway, long story short, back in the 60s, I believe, uh, Stanley Milgram um, performed these experiments that have been duplicated many, many, many times all around the world. It shows the same thing. Basically, people can be led into unspeakable, horrible acts of torture and maybe even killing other people simply because they are being told to do so by an authority figure, which obviously has some pretty big ramifications for human freedom and uh, the liberty movement generally. Um, and I've talked about that many times. I talked about it most recently in my uh, uh, the TSA and other experiments in evil uh, episode of my podcast where I likened the TSA to basically a giant um, Milgram experiment that's being performed on society right now. Um, but Davy has an idea for kind of extending that and doing another experiment that would show even more clearly um, the way, uh, sort of the, the mindset of people who are inclined to obey authority and then people who disobey. And what makes the people disobey? You know, is it is it something innate, just certain people d disobey? Or is there something, some sort of variable that we can then hone in on as to what makes people more likely to disobey authority. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, experiment. And in the setup to that, he talks about a lot of different experiments that have been done, not just the Milgram experiment, but other experiments along that line, like the Stanford prison experiment that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, but others as well, some that people haven't heard about. And in one of those experiments he's uh, writing about, um, it's basically an experiment to find out about people in positions of power over other people and how they act differently, etc., uh, etc. Et and it, it, he goes on to quote the summary of this, where they say, Our last experiment found that the spiral of inequality, power and no low power, money and low money, can be broken if the illegitimacy of the power distribution is revealed. One way to undermine the legitimacy of authority is open revolt. But a more subtle way in which the powerless might curb self-enrichment by the powerful is by tainting their reputation, for example, by gossiping. If the power powerful sense that their unrestrained self-enrichment leads to gossiping, derision, and the undermining of their reputation as conscientious leaders, they then they may be inspired to bring their behavior back to their espoused standards. Uh, if they fail to do so, they may quickly lose their authority, reputation, and eventually their power. And... Uh, Davi concludes from this, not by violence or revolution can be people, uh, can authoritarian sociopathy be undermined, but simply by undermining their sense of legitimacy, which is something I've tried to point out as well in my work. Um, for example, laughing at tyrants, you know, laughing at the stupidity of these leaders is an exceptionally effective way of undermining their legitimacy uh, and the stranglehold that they have over people's minds, which, as you say, Larkin Rose, most dangerous superstition, that's what it's about. I mean, that, Larkin Rose is essentially is the same thing as Boatee was saying 500 years ago. It's in your mind, and if you disobey, that is the power. That is freedom. Anyway, um, let's move on. Again, changing gears dramatically to something I talked about quite recently on my podcast, Science on the Verge, uh, which is an, uh, a book that was put together by a group of philosophers of science um, under this book series called The Rightful Place of Science, examining the place of science in society in the current day and age. I was examining it um, 
as preparation for a podcast I was doing on the crisis of science and open science, which people can find on my website. Basically, the idea that suddenly people are discovering, you know, all of these incredible breakthroughs that we found in oncology research and uh, all sorts of different fields, actually most of them are utterly irreproducible and basically garbage. And what's happening? You know, how did we get there? So this book goes into that crisis and what it's about and, and what it means. And um, specifically, the final chapter was uh, on uncertainty in science is so fascinating to me. And it, it goes right into the heart of the subject so that I'm really interested in, including the, uh, the man-made global warming debate and, and uh, the sort of, you know, settled science idea of it. Um, and just to give you a sense of that, uh, in this chapter, they're talking about the different uh, the different ways that CO2 modeling then becomes the basis for modeling about impacts on the environment that then becomes the basis for Im- uh, models that will uh, tell us what the climate's going to be like in 100 years. And putting that in perspective, what that chain of uncertainty looks like, he, uh, the author of this uh, essay writes, moving in this way from population growth to energy futures, to carbon emissions, to climate change, to impacts such as the loss of biodiversity, seem to imply that we know the structure of the models in each step of the cascade, that it's just a matter of inputting the right parameter values in order to do the right calculations, and even to quantify the uncertainty in the model chain outcome for local climate impacts. However, do we really know the structure of this complex system well enough to make a reliable conceptual model to predict its behavior? Are all the assumptions we make to link the models valid? And I I will leave it there, but I really suggest people read this book, specifically that chapter, because he gives specific examples like the Dutch government and the way they calculated ammonia gases in, in the environment. People might think, oh, they just go out and measure, you know, how much ammonia is in the atmosphere. No, of course that's not how it works. No, it's based on models they have about how much farmland there is and what is the likely percentage that that farmland is going to be populated by these certain types of grazing animals and what does that mean in terms of what we imagine we can predict how much ammonia might be released as a result of that farming activity and blah, 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 blah. And all of this different Calculation after calculation after model after guess after guess leads to the final figure of how much ammonia is in the atmosphere. And they show the specific example in the Dutch environment report that the Dutch government issues every year, how from one year to the next, the amount of ammonia in the atmosphere changed by uh, orders of magnitude more than the error bars in the uncertainties of that because they, they came up with a different calculate, a different way to calculate that model. Uh, which shows it's total crap. <laughs> it's total nonsense. Yeah, it makes sense internally, but and that's just uh, and there's so many examples like that in the climate science, um, specifically in the climate science uh, examples. Uh, again, it's a fascinating read for me. Anyway, uh, let's move on to uh, a book by Jeffrey Tucker, um, who I don't know if you guys have talked to him before. Yeah, uh, I interviewed Jeffrey Tucker in a interview called "Is Capitalism Moral?" All right, good. All right. Well, I've had him on twice, I think. Once specifically to talk about this book. It's called "Bit by Bit: How P2P Is Freeing the World," which was a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. Um, it's a few years old now, so I guess talking about technology a few years is like a few centuries essentially but but the idea is there it's talking about p2p and decentralization and how that is truly freeing the world and um 
Uh, he talks about a lot of different aspects of that, including talking about Hayek and spontaneous order and things like that. And uh, one particularly interesting quote, he says, only individuals possess the knowledge that nearly all social scientists and bureaucracies imagine that they can, must, and do possess. Anyone who seeks to control the social order is presuming that the unanswerable questions are already answered and proceeds from that point. Hayek, F.A. Hayek, for those who don't know, the famed economist and thinker, is digging deeper to observe that we cannot possibly know what we must know if we seek to design, much less rule, the world. The knowledge is dispersed and by its nature uncollectible. Um, an important point. I've tried to make this point before. I've talked about spontaneous order on my podcast. It's an exceptionally important point for people who are advocating liberty and freedom and anarchy? Oh no, anarchy. <laughs> What's going to happen? Hell in a handbasket, cats marrying dogs. How will, how will society function unless there's someone in place who will dictate how that uh, society will be ordered? No, no, no. It's the exact opposite. No one can, even if that was an ideal which it is not, but even if it was, no one can direct society to come up with the incredibly intricate order that we have that has arisen spontaneously because of free and voluntary interactions between free peoples. That's a, such an important point um, that most people can't not get their head around, and that is the main stum stumbling block, I think, for a lot of people towards the idea of anarchy. Ooh. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World by J. Michael Springman. For those who don't know, J. Michael Springman was a consular officer in the Jeddah Consulate uh, in Saudi Arabia for the U.S. State Department back in the 1980s. And at that time, um, well, I'll, I'll read from the what is this about section of his book where he explains the story in a nutshell. Al-Qaeda, Arabic for the base the database, grew out of uh, and became identical with the Arab-Afghan Legion, those terrorists recruited by the United States of America, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Originally sent to Afghanistan, they fought the USSR's army and air force following the Soviet Union's invasion of that country. Later, the Central Intelligence Agency directed them to cross the border and destabilize the Muslim republics of the Soviet Union. Still later, the American government moved them into the Balkans to destroy Yugoslavia, and then similarly to Iraq, followed by Libya and Syria. They received visas to travel to the United States, usually from Saudi Arabia, for training, debriefing, and other purposes. In enabling their passage, American government officials violated the Immigration and Nationality Act as well as the State Department's regulations codified in its Foreign Affairs Manual. I know. I was there. I issued the visas and I objected to gross violations of law and regulation. As a result, as happens to nearly all whistleblowers, I was fired. Um, it's an incredible story, and as he says, this is a first-hand story from the guy who was there and doing it, and then, uh, and how he pieced it all together, and what was going on, and the CIA that were in the consulate. Anyway, long, long, long story short, fast forward a decade from when he was in the consulate, and it turns out the Jeddah consulate is the consulate from which, I can never remember the exact number, it's uh, 10 or 11, I think, of the 9-11 hijackers got their visas at the Jeddah Consulate, where they were issuing these visas for terrorists. The U.S. supported, funded a uh, terrorists. So anyway, long story, but a fascinating read. I'll have more to say about that in the future. I have interviewed Springman about that book as well, so 
people can look at that. Speaking of interviewing people about their books, I've interviewed Joe Plummer about Tragedy and Hope 101, The Illusion of Justice, Freedom, and Democracy. For people who don't know, this is a book that is summarizing the work of Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley was a Georgetown professor, blah, 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 inspired people like Bill Clinton, da, da, da. He was a mainstream, respected, still a respected historian, but he did a little thing. He kind of wrote about some things he probably shouldn't have written about. And this isn't to put Carol Quigley on some pedestal. I don't think he was a great person. Uh, he, w he said, I agree with this group that I'm writing about and their plans and everything. I just don't understand why they want to keep it quiet. And then after he wrote about their their plans, uh, the originals uh, uh, of his of his book were demolished, uh, destroyed, and they they wouldn't reprint the book like he uh, wanted. So, uh, what's going on? It's like I've been blacklisted or something. Anyway, so Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo American Establishment are books that he wrote, basically detailing an organization that was extremely influential in the early part of the 20th century, um, that has almost never been written about. That flowered out of the idea of Cecil Rhodes to form some sort of secret society, but it, it, it it's not exactly about that. It kind of morphed into this other thing that became the roundtable groups and blah, 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 the Council on Foreign Relations, yada, yada. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but the problem is Tragedy and Hope is like a thousand pages. The Anglo-American establishment is only a couple hundred, but they're not exactly light bedtime reading pages. They're filled with names and dates and stuff. So Joe Plummer has created the summary. If you just want to, what is this about? He's got the book that basically explains it. And one example of that that I'll, I'll cite here, um, he's talking about the accomplishments of this, this group that uh, Rhodes put together. He says, the first instrument created by Rhodes and his associates was the uh, secret society itself. After 17 years of planning, Rhodes called a meeting and formally established the society. Inspired by the Jesuits, the Illuminati, and the Freemasons, of which he was a member, Rhodes hoped to uh, succeed where the other secret societies had failed. Using a rings-within-rings structure, the center ring of power, composed of Rhodes and just three other individuals, would control all of the outer rings. Of the three individuals who shared the inner ring with Rhodes, Alfred Milner, later awarded the title Lord Milner, became the strongest. And then he goes on and he quotes a little section from um, Carol Quigley, and then he explains what that means and who these people are. So that's that's the gist of it. He takes this very big story and he puts it in the little nugget that you can kind of get your head around, which is great because I've been telling versions and permutations of this over the years, and people will see in my World War One conspiracy, for example. I'm trying to elaborate this, but Joe gets right to the point and puts it in a very simple way. Um, that I hope gets the point across. And he's got tons of footnotes, so if you want to see exactly what he's talking about. All right. Uh, okay, so now. Now we've done a lot of hard-hitting nonfiction stuff. Should we get into some fiction? Please. All right. Okay. Okay, uh, since I'm in my ebook repository, let's uh, go to the ebook. Um, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Uh, people who don't know, this is essentially a, a fictional recounting, obviously fictional, of a future revolt on the moon, an anarchist revol revolution on the moon, which has become kind of a penal colony um, for where the, you send the bad people, uh, and, you know, essentially like Australia of old, it's the moon in the future. <laughs> we'll send them off to the moon and they'll go fend for themselves. And they have a pretty free system, but not completely free. They're still controlled by the Earth government. And essentially an anarchist revolution takes place on the moon to create an anarchist society. 
I think this is, I mean, it's not only a, a fun novel, I mean, it's just fun to read, but it's so important, I think, to show people how something can happen, rather than talk about it, or rather than having, you know, abstract theoretical debates. No, show step by step how something like this can actually unfold in a way that makes sense, at least makes sense in the logic of the story, so that people can start to wrap their imagination around what what it is we're talking about. This is how you get from here to freedom. And this is how it can happen. It could really happen. I mean, this is obviously fiction, but this is, you know, think about it. This is how it would unfold. So it's a fascinating uh, story from that um, perspective. And I like, uh, I mean, at the end, it becomes a bit expository with the professor basically telling people how, you know, this is, you know, you're trying to set up a new government, but really this is how it should be done. And he's saying, for example, um, about revolutions, he's saying every new member made it that much that much more likely that you would be betrayed. Uh, Wyoming, dear lady, revolutions are not won by enlisting the masses. Revolution is a science; only a few are competent to practice. It depends on correct organization and, above all, on communications. Then, at the proper moment in history, they strike. Correctly organized and properly timed, it is a bloodless coup. Done clumsily or prematurely, and the result is civil war, mob violence purges terror. Um, so this is an example of the former, the bloodless uh, type of revolution, which I assume is the one that we're all looking for. I certainly don't want blood flowing on the streets. I don't want mass pandemonium. If I had the magical anarchist switch to switch the world over to anarchists tomorrow, I wouldn't, I wouldn't flip that switch. Absolutely not. People are not ready in their mind to go to that society. And that's what so much of this comes back to. Bowie and, and Rose and um, and uh, Barker and all these other people are writing about this. It's about the mind. And unless we're in the right mind space for what freedom and why we need freedom and how it can be done, until we get there, we're, you know, we can't just flip that switch. So how do you get from here to there? So I think it, that's a fascinating story that puts it in a fictional perspective. Uh, here's a, a fiction book that people should read. Uh, B.F. Skinner, who people will know as the Skinner Box, the guy who trained pigeons to turn around on command and all of that. You know, they, he put his daughter, I believe, in a, in a little box that he could control her when she was young. Just crazy, crazy stuff. The founder of behavioral, or one of the leading lights of behavioral uh, psychology, and so, still revered to this day as a profound thinker, wrote a novel called Walden Two, obviously going on... Uh, Walden. Um, uh, but this is, so it's about how would we create a society of people who could be basically conditioned from birth to be a certain way. Uh, it's been a few years since I read it, but it is fascinating. And um, he talks about, uh, I thought I highlighted a, oh, I'm not going to find it now. But he, t he talks uh, about how you could essentially train children and obviously, I mean, obviously, this is based on his research and his dream of creating a type of utopia. It is now widely recognized that great changes must be made in the American way of life. Not only can we not face the rest of the world while consuming and polluting as we do, we cannot for long face ourselves while acknowledging the violence and chaos in which we live. The choice is clear. Either we do nothing and allow a miserable and probably catastrophic future to overtake us, or we use our knowledge about human behavior to create a social environment in which we shall live productive and creative lives and do so without jeopardizing the chances that something who uh, someone 
that those who follow us will be able to do the same thing. Something like a Walden 2 would not be a bad start. So this, I mean, this is essentially what he's doing. He's trying to put it in a story form so that people, again, can get their imagination around it. But this is how you do it. You'd create a society of obedient people who will just, not, not, not even that they will follow orders, but they will naturally slot into certain places in society. You will have people for every section. If that sounds like Brave New World, well, I think it's because they were swimming around in the same circles and ingesting the same stuff. So uh, it's a fascinating book. I did an episode of my film literature and the New World Order series about Walden 2, so people can dip into the archives for that. Um, I've talked about my favorite book a couple of times before, which is Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, which I recommend to absolutely no one because it <laughs> it's one of those books. It's extremely difficult to read and it's, it's crazy and it's inexplicable and I wouldn't even try to foist it on my worst enemy. I love it. But I imagine 99.9999% of people on Earth would not love it. So I won't, <laughs> I won't belabor that point. If you want to get into Faulkner, uh, start with As I Lay Dying. I think it's a great, it's a, it's a little book, it's a great story, uh, it's got some beautiful weirdness in there, including a chapter that is just, I am a fish, <laughs> is the whole chapter. Uh, it's just, uh, I love it. But today, I'll recommend this book. Um, well, actually, I won't recommend it. I can't recommend it. Uh, someone once asked me, what's that pink and yellow thing on your bookshelf? Why is that always up there? So this is uh, an edition which has probably been superseded by a new translation or something by now, but this is the one I was reading a couple decades ago of uh, In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. A la recherche de ton perdu, which was uh, traditionally rendered as remembrance of things past, but more recently, this is the way they translated. In Search of Lost Time, and it's a seven... Six or seven. I think it was different in the different translations, but six or seven volume. <laughs> and not not small volumes. <laughs> I think altogether it's 3,000 pages or something. <laughs> so this is volume five. Uh, when I was uh, back in university, I read volumes one to four. I got through the first four volumes. And if you get through the first four volumes of this, you don't want to stop. <laughs> like, I'm almost done reading In Search of Lost Time. This is a monumental accomplishment. But for some reason, I got to volume five, and I've never even... I, I think I got the... Fr uh, cracked it open, but I never really got through it. And I don't know if I'll ever finish this book. I'm not sure I'm going to stay awake at night thinking about that. But at any rate, I don't know if I'll ever finish this book. But I, I love... Again, this is something I would not recommend. 99.9999% of humanity will not love it, but I love Proust's writing style. It's crazy. Uh, he has sentences that go on for pages, but they're just so amazing. And one that always stuck out to me, I remember reading, and I think this is in Volume 3, The Germantes Way, um... I remember it. I read it like 20 years ago, and I could still remember this sentence. So in preparation for today's conversation, I'm like, I wonder if I can look that up. So I went and looked up the sentence that I remembered, and it just, it gives you a taste of Proust. Okay, so this is a sentence. I won't even explain the context, because who cares? It's just, this is one sentence. And for all that she could remember the queens using those words to her, she would nevertheless have bartered them gladly for the permanent faculty of being asked everywhere which uh, of being asked everywhere which Madame Le Roy possessed, 
As in a restaurant, a great but unknown artist whose genius is written neither in the lines of his bashful face nor in the antiquated cut of his threadbare coat, would willingly be even the young stock jobber of the lowest grade of society, who is sitting with a couple of actresses at a neighboring table, to which, in an obsequious and incessant chain, come hurrying manager, head waiter, pages, and even the scullions who file out of the kitchen to salute him, as in the fairy tales, while the wine waiter advances, dust covered like the bottles, limping and dazed, as if on his way up from the cellar he had twisted his foot before emerging into the light of day. <laughs> Which isn't even the longest sentence in this book, but anyway, I, I still remember that, because there's so many kind of characters in that sentence that aren't even real, like... Even in the the fiction of the story, they those aren't even characters. It's like an imagine. It's it's an analogy. He's saying it's like this thing that's happening, and then he paints this scene that you can see in your head that doesn't even exist. That's just meant to illustrate what this other person is feeling. It's crazy, but amazing, and it's so infectious. I can never. I remember when I was reading Proust and I tried to write some fiction, it would always come out like Proust. <laughs> I'd come out with these gigantic sentences. It's so awesome. And then, okay, so the last little tidbit I'll leave you with, which I don't think I've ever talked about before. College Green, the literary arts journal of Trinity College Dublin, uh, edited by James Corbett, introduction by Dermot Bolger. So when I was at Trinity College, I edited the uh, literary journal that the Graduate Students' Union put out. And uh, I'll recommend it. I don't think there's any way to buy it. I don't, I don't think... But I think you might... If you physically go to Dublin and go to Trinity College and go to the Graduate Students' Union, maybe you can get a copy. I don't know. <laughs> but I've got one. And so this is just basically uh, mostly students of Trinity College at the time. I so uh, solicited, I put together a board of people to basically look over submissions and publish the best ones. So we had a little contest that was sponsored by the, uh, I think by the, 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 the Department of English at Trinity College. A anyway, just a little bit of James Corbett triviality there that no one even knows exists. But hey, there he goes. Uh, there's my imprint on the literary world. I was the editor of this journal back in 2003. So, That's James, it. you you were one of the uh, the English majors that actually read everything. Because <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah, I actually did. Oh. I did English in my undergrad, and most of the time I was like trying to get past what they were spewing at me in class and doing my own reading in the meantime. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I didn't have my own reading basically. I just, I, yeah, for four years, I just read everything that I was assigned and it was insane. I will go one step further in insanity. I once, uh, I, I, I saw that my friend's English class that I wasn't even in was, uh, doing Absalom Absalom. And I'm like, Oh my god, and like well, they're actually talking about Absalom Absalom. So I went and just sat in on that class. I'm sure I was the only person in the room who'd read the book, but I was fascinated. <laughs> I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I um so just a few things before we go. Um so Moon is a harsh mistress. I did some work on that. I don't know if it was Thought Crime Thursdays way back in the beginning of the show, but I would posit, James, that don't they have a bigger government at the end of the book than they did at the beginning, much like the American Revolution? Yeah, yeah, I think that's embedded in there. But the point is, like, here's the anarchist revolution, here's how it unfolds, and then at the very end, you know, this is how they close the door. But, um, 
But I mean, it's still hopeful. It's better than before, right? And maybe right. it'll be kind of more, relatively more freedom for a while. Yeah, I haven't read the book for a couple of years now, so I don't remember the details of it. But but uh, the points that the professor makes at the end is important because he's the one who's basically saying, look, you don't want a government. I, trust me on this. You don't want to do it go this way. Well, and he makes some of the same points that we make over and over again in our, you know, with the voluntarist message. How do you delegate a right that you don't have? And uh, that sort of thing. But have you read We by Yevgeny Zamyatin? No, but I, I've heard of it, yeah. I would check out, there's a certain translation, and the prose in it is just fantastic. Like, I mean, Brave New World in 1984, I don't think it's quite as artfully prosy as We is. Hmm. So I would check that out if, awesome. if you haven't read it so far. Definitely. I absolutely will. Um. And I actually have one thing for James that I wanted to ask him. James, you had a episode called uh, the Fake News Awards, which was one of my favorite, in which you go over the case of Banna Alabad. And after watching the video, it appears to be extremely fake, staged, propaganda, whatnot. And you respond with, um, it's amazing to see how much they hate you. I'm curious what you meant by using propaganda is the equivalent of hating the populace it's used against. Mm. What did you mean by that? Uh, I'll have to step into the moment that I said that. So I I don't remember the the exact context of that, but I think the general gist would be that they... uh, I I think the, the propagandists who are lying to your face in such blatant ways, as you say, you look at that video and you know this is staged. I mean, you, you can see she's reading it. It's just, it's nonsense. The idea that they would expect you to simply believe that, or at the very least to swallow it without spitting it back up, I think that's hatred. I think that they are literally not just insulting your intelligence, they're almost delighting in it. They're kind of rubbing your face in the feces and saying, you know, eat that. You don't do that to someone that you love or care about or are indifferent to. You do that to someone you hate. I think there's a hatred embedded in that, uh, especially when it's at that level of just in your face. This is a complete lie. Now, here it is for you. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, and then so the one last question that I had for you, James, and then we'll let you do your plugs and send you on your way. Um is there, I think you've been asked this question before, but is there any prospect for a book penned by James Corbett? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I only promised it a decade ago. Uh, I am literally, I, I know, I, I don't even want to talk about it because I hate saying things that aren't, it's coming. It is coming. I don't know exactly when, but I am literally working on it. Like, I uh, just today, I've just finished another section of it. Um, I've got it all written. It's just the process of refining and editing and getting it whittled down. <laughs> but yes, I am going to write, I am writing, I have written, actually, technically, a collection of essays, and I'm going to put that out. It's not a book on one subject, it's a collection of essays about different subjects. And it's already written, I'm just editing and working on it, and yeah, uh, I will get it out soon <laughs> you know as soon as i asked you that i remembered that the the uh the specter of the book that you're writing so i apologize to put you on the spot are you perfect i deserve it i deserve it i need the kick in the butt uh, it, 
I really just have to get it done. And uh, it's impossible to really work on it while doing the podcast and the interviews and everything. But I will find, I will scrape together more than 24 hours in the day and somehow pull off another miracle. And it'll get done. All right, James. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time, and thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Is there anything anything you want to plug? I know I'll be doing the show notes page. It'll be a mile long. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I, exactly. I'll send you the links to all of the books that I've talked about, and um, and we'll let people just, when I say that I've interviewed the author, we'll let them look it up, because that'll make the show notes so long. So you can type names into my search bar, and as I say, I've got that books tag on my site now, so if you are interested, if you ever find yourself, hey, I don't have a book to read, just go to my site, corporatereport.com, and I believe the link, uh, we'll put the link in the um, show notes. The link is corbettreport.com slash tag slash books. And there you will find the, just the list of all of the episodes I've done pertaining to interviewing a book, talking about a book, or recommending books. Okay, excellent. All right, yeah, well, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate your time and look forward to speaking to you again. All right, thank you guys, and uh, keep at it. I really appreciate the work you're doing. <laughs>